Hello and welcome to the Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Maria Armudian. In this hour, climate change is an existential threat that demands bold action and a transformation of how humanity uses its resources. Are we up to the challenge? Doug Becker explores. I'm Doug Becker. On today's show, we will explore the state of the planet, its rising temperatures, and whether the campaign to correct this is up to the challenge. Our panel is William Muma, Emeritus Professor of International Environmental Policy and the founding director of the Center for International Environment and Resource Policy at the Fletcher School. He's the co-founder and current co-director of the Global Development and Environment Institute at Tufts University. Professor Muma has been a lead author in five of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change or IPCC reports. And he's the author of Good Scientist Diplomats or Diplomat Scientists, Who Makes Science Diplomacy Effective? Leroy Westerling is professor of the management of complex systems in the Ernest and Julio Gallo Management Program at the University of California, Merced. He's the co-author of Greater Temperature and Precipitation Extremes Intensify Western U.S. Droughts, Wildfire Severity, and Sierra Nevada Tree Mortality. Christopher Wright is Professor of Organizational Studies at the University of Sydney Business School. He's the co-author of Climate Change, Capitalism and Corporations, Processes of Creative Self-Destruction. And Prue Taylor, Deputy Director of the New Zealand Center for Environmental Law and Senior Lecturer in the School of Architecture and Planning at the University of Auckland. She's the author of Opportunity Within Failure, Can the Global Pact for the Environment Learn from the Responsibility to Protect, and the Responsibility for the Ecological Integrity of the High Seas, the Role of Natural Law. Thank you all very much for joining us. Leroy Westerling, the nature of the climate change challenge is a potential existential threat to life on the planet, certainly the, the way in which we currently have been living life. What exactly is the nature of this challenge? So climate change all comes down to how we use fire, right? <laughs> Burning things alters the atmosphere in ways that heat it up. And one of the impacts that I look at in my own work is really then how there's an increased risk of subsequent fire and uh, uh, fire severity and changes in the timing and pace and tempo and behavior of fire that impacts ecosystem services, uh, individual people's life, health, safety, air pollution uh, affects large population centers. It can be quite far from, from where the fires are actually occurring. The biggest challenges in terms of managing uh, climate change and its impacts really stem back to sort of the trajectory of how we got here. So after 150 years of, of ever-increasing fossil fuel use, we have had basically an economic and population and productivity bubble built on top of fossil fuel use that's been enormously successful in economic terms, you know, without looking at the environmental uh, um, impacts. And part of that has been to entrench in political systems around the world, not just democratic ones, but every, everywhere, um, the political power of the vested interests of people who have benefited the most from owning sort of the, the basic elements of the fossil fuel system. 
And uh, that makes it very difficult to affect change on this scale, right? They're, they're like the dominant economic players on a planetary scale. And uh, that means that treaties in particular with hard limits are a much harder barrier to overcome when you have uh, entrenched interests that, that are opposing rapid change that, that's going to make their, their assets valueless. So um, these voluntary agreements are basically necessitated by the difficulty of overcoming sort of entrenched opposition of very wealthy, powerful players. Are they ideal? No, but it's better than doing nothing. Basically, the strategy right now is to set global standards where people voluntarily step up and say, you know, what we should be doing and then use moral suasion to get them to continue to live up to their commitments and to continue to ratchet them up. Um, and that's because we overcoming these vested interests is very difficult. And, and a, a key part of that problem really is that expertise in a drilling <laughs> and sucking stuff out of the ground through a straw, for example, and, and shipping it around the planet doesn't give you, say, a leg up on, on a competitive advantage in, say, running a, a solar-based and battery-based power system, for example. So it's not like uh, they see really obvious opportunities where they have competitive advantage uh, to shift into in sort of the new energy economy that we'd like to move towards. And, and that makes it even harder to overcome since the focus, you know, here very much on economic activity, Christopher Wright, I'll bring you in. And there's been a lot of emphasis on governmental action, you know, the need for regulations, you know, coming from governments and the nature of treaties. But the business community plays a, a pretty substantial role. You know, corporate actors play a pretty substantial role then in the kinds of transitions that we're going to need to be able to address this challenge. How effective have some of these campaigns been? This is the critical problem, and I just endorse everything that Professor Westling's just outlined because it completely concurs with the way I see the problem. Um, yeah, we have an economic, a global capitalist economic system, which is basically predicated on two centuries of burning coal, oil, and gas, and pretty well everything we do is, is based on fossil energy. So reinventing that in um, the space of a decade or two is a Herculean task. And the problem, I guess, focusing on the business sector side of it, um, and again, going back to those earlier comments, is that the dominant economic units in the global economy are fossil capital. I mean, if you look at the largest companies by revenue, um, sure, there's Walmart and there's a few others, but they're mostly um, fossil fuel companies. You know, they're Exxon and Saudi Aramco and other companies like that. So where the business sector um, gets involved, um, you, there's a lot of attention now over the last several decades around corporate sustainability and sustainability rankings, um, disclosing your carbon emissions, um, carbon disclosure projects sort of, um, but it's often, it's, it's all voluntary essentially. Um, it's voluntary corporate action. And in fact, businesses and corporations and industry associations have advocated very strongly for a self-regulatory approach. I mean, that's the dominant sort of message of, four decades of neoliberal, um, uh, of the neoliberal agenda that, that the state and government should get out of the way of markets and corporations uh, creating shareholder value. Um, so when you see corporations proclaiming their greenness and, and their uh, innovations in their supply chains to make them more eco-efficient, et cetera, et cetera, um, a lot of that is, is fairly marginal to the task at hand. What we need is a truly radical decarbonisation of the global economy 
which obviously, as, as Professor Westling pointed out, um, threatens the, the vested interests of, of coal, oil and gas because it makes their assets and their market value basically stranded assets. So what you find is that while many business organisations talk a good game around being environmentally sustainable, some of them, and particularly on the fossil energy side, are playing a double game. They're in the halls of politics they're on Capitol Hill or Canberra in Australia or wherever it is, and they're lobbying against any restrictions on continued extraction and use of fossil energy. Uh, and in fact, in Australia, we're particularly bad at this. We're the largest exporter of coal and gas in the world. And in the aftermath of COP26, uh, Deputy Prime Minister said, well, this is a green light to expand coal and gas, not, you know, tone it down, expand. So it's, it's a political game and, and businesses, large parts of businesses are playing that political game very effectively over the last four decades. It seems like this emphasis on the, this voluntary approach then requires at least some sort of a legal uh, structure to try to deal with this. And Prue Taylor, I know you research in areas in environmental law and kind of the legal structure, legal foundations. Are, are there alterations in sort of the legal approaches that we've taken to this? Because it certainly seems that some of the pushback is this is going to be extremely difficult and perhaps there's not enough motivation for a voluntary shift. These issues are incredibly complex. Where law and politics come together, we really struggle. Our international legal system has struggled for many years, but when we come to these massive uh, collective problems like climate change, we see the real cracks opening up. But what we don't see yet is um, innovative legal strategies coming through to really address those gaps. And that's why for 30 years, we've been taking this voluntary approach to climate change, which is really, really not delivering. And it's, it's this sort of combination, whilst we might get very frustrated with governments, as we've just heard, there are vested private interests that are really doing their utmost to manipulate governments to get the types of responses that best suit their interests. So in terms of the sort of political shifts that have to happen in order to, to really open up innovative legal strategies, these political shifts have to, to really draw on civil society a lot more than they are. And um, I think there are going to be some mechanisms that, that will lead to these political shifts. One, we're seeing youth coming through far more um, powerfully. We're seeing Indigenous peoples coming through much more powerfully in these discussions. Um, what we are starting to see in some countries, not all countries, is the moral dilemmas, the moral discussions, the deep inequities coming through much more strongly. And, and this supports an understanding that um, what we're grappling with uh, is are fundamentally moral issues, issues of deep inequity and deep injustice. And I think, you know, once those sorts of discussions come to the fore, then we start to open up a space <laughs> for really innovative change. And these deep inequities are occurring, not just between the traditional developed and developing countries or North and South, they're happening within developed countries as well. 
And once this sort of deep inequity becomes more discussed and more prevalent and more understood, the more we start to realize that this is not just a pollution control problem. This is not just about fossil fuels. This is a much bigger existential crisis and, and, a, and a fundamental justice crisis. Then I think we actually start to force governments uh, and scholars to think far more creatively about the sorts of changes to international diplomacy and law and economics that we require. So um, with the current voluntary approach is clearly not delivering. Uh, and I have my severe doubts that it'll deliver in the timeframes that we have with climate change. Um, but I think there are opportunities to start to move now to change that voluntary system. And it will be a progressive change, but we have some platforms for that change to occur and we have history to draw on. If we're prepared to be, to, to be transformative enough to not put up with business as usual, right? If we're prepared to do that, then we have a way forward from where we are. If we're not prepared to be that brave, then we are going to see the consequences of that inaction. You're listening to Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. We're discussing the challenge of climate change and what's needed to try to address this challenge with William Muma of Tufts University, Leroy Westerling of the University of California Merced, Christopher Wright of the University of Sydney, and Prue Taylor of the University of Auckland. And uh, William Muma, you focus quite a bit on issues of diplomacy and the relationship between uh, the scientific community, the, the diplomatic community. I mean, diplomacy has the capability of shifting some of these discourses. Uh, and I think we're talking about the nature of shifting these discourses. You know, how should these, these discourses shift and what's the best way to, uh, to see the shift? Well, that's, of course, the question of the century, isn't it? <laughs> uh, certainly, certainly what, uh, what my colleagues on this, uh, uh, on this call have, have, uh, have said is absolutely on target. Um, a group of, um, I and 14 of my colleagues uh, published a paper and had it revealed at COP26 uh, with 2,300 scientists endorsing it. And, um, and, and it basically covered uh, virtually all the, all, all the points, uh, particularly uh, that uh, Professor Westerling made. And, uh, and it wasn't designed to change the direction. It would never change the direction, but we have to keep putting these markers out. And what I've discovered is as we scientists put out more, uh, to the public and get more letters with thousands of signatures on them. Uh, the press starts uh, re referencing them. You know, why are we doing this? You know, uh, so many thousands of scientists uh, sent a letter to uh, uh, the European uh, Commission or to uh, President Biden or to whatever it is saying that what you're doing is absolutely wrong. And there's a lot that's absolutely wrong that's been going on in the name of uh, in misguided uh, solutions. I mean, that's another thing we have to stop doing solutions that make the problem worse. I'll give you an example. Uh, yes, it is. Um, I, I always find these kind of numbers uh, fascinating. Uh, uh, until 1960, 
Um, natural systems emitted more carbon dioxide to the atmosphere than fossil fuels. 1992, the year of the UN claim, um, Framework Convention on Climate Change, uh, since that treaty in 1992, the world has added as much fossil fuel em uh, emissions to the atmosphere as in the entire previous period from the Industrial Revolution to 1992. That would suggest we're not <laughs> we're not getting the message when uh, we put that in place, and uh, and and we do as much as we did, but in but in a much shorter time, right? In 30 years instead of instead of the centuries that it took to get there before. I think the statements that were made about the, the economic powers, um, we don't use the term corruption, uh, but in all our countries, um, as one colleague said, you know, I just realized America has the best government money can buy, uh, which is a, a sad, a sad commentary. I'd say Australia is in the same, in the same boat. Uh, New Zealand is doing a bit better. Um, and uh, no, <laughs> well, uh, they appear to be doing better in any case, uh, and um, I think I think these international agreements, as ineffective as they are, are essential because what they do is they they point a direction, and um, therefore the hypocrisy of not going in that direction becomes obvious, and that's why this youth movement has been so effective and so powerful, and why the uh, climate justice movement has gotten such traction. And we've gone to listen to the people who've actually learned how to do this, which are the indigenous people who are, uh, what, a few million people in the world and they control, I saw a figure the other day, something like 40% of the biodiversity on the planet or something is on their territories. Uh, so we need those, we need these larger agreements uh, for, for, um, for guide stars, if you like. But if we want to get things done, we have to go to a different level. Uh, which is, um, you know, in the United States, it's the states. The national government isn't doing much, but the states have been doing a lot. I mean, California, New York, Massachusetts, Oregon, Washington, those states are doing a lot. Not every state is doing it, but the ones that are doing it are showing the way. And once they're successful economically in doing that, then basically others will follow. The other world is the world of corporations. And uh, I became frustrated back in the 1990s when it was clear the U.S. Senate was never going to ratify the Kyoto Protocol. And I got together with some friends and we said, well, we can't just sit around and wait and, until they ratify because they're never going to ratify. And so nothing's going to get done. And so who can get things done? We've settled on states in the United States and on corporations. And uh, out of that eventually came an international organization called the Climate Group uh, that I, I'm the board chair of that now. And they have things like uh, corporations, we urge them to uh, commit to 100% renewable energy. I just, just checked and, and uh, the, at the latest, uh, we have 342 major corporations that have said they'll be 100% renewable energy. Now they have different time frames, but we looked at some of them, they said by 2050, no thank you. We said that's not good enough. And so, um, and, in, and in a couple of cases, we have removed members who weren't doing things. So. The ones that are out in front, uh, it's kind of it's kind of fun actually to watch this. Every year we have a big uh, climate week in New York, and we have all these CEOs there and everything. And the way they try to outdo each other into how much they're reducing their emissions and how much renewable energy they have is is really, you know, they have a competitive spirit. Well, let's get them competing on something that's useful, which is is getting rid of carbon. And then just one final point. 
sadly, uh, a number of countries have taken uh, the goal as eliminating fossil fuels. But the, the goal is to eliminate greenhouse gases. And that includes carbon dioxide that's not only from fossil fuels, but from a lot of other things, from making steel, from making, uh, you, you know, for producing um, uh, fertilizer, all of those things uh, emit in a, and in the EU, what they've done is they've made it, it not only legal, but they subsidize uh, saving these old coal plants by having them burn wood. And then they get the wood from North America and count it as zero in Europe because the rules say it's where it's harvested that counts. Uh, well, this is ridiculous and, and, it, and it set up a terrible system and it would not be viable were it not for government um, paying the subsidies because it's just not economically viable. Uh, there's a book out by uh, James Gus Speth entitled They Knew, 50 Years of U.S. Government Facilitating uh, Climate Change. And he's been in the government. He was head of the Council of Environmental Quality. He was uh, head of the UNDP. He's a prominent person. And I haven't gotten it yet. And, I, and I, I, I think it'll be a depressing read, but I think it's an essential read. So we have a long ways to go. And, and I think we just, as scientists, we have to help mobilize the public, inform the public, inform our legislators. There are some good legislators. There's some good people in government who want to solve this and keep them informed. And then we just have to keep keep at it. And, you know, as an older person, I feel a wonderful affinity for the Greta Thunbergs of this world. Um, I think it's interesting. We're at uh, the opposite end of the age spectrum and we're, we're, we're the ones who are on the same page. And uh, youth are the future. And that gives me hope. You listen to the Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. We're discussing the challenge of climate change and what's needed to try to address this challenge with William Muma of Tufts University, Leroy Westerling of the University of California, Merced, Christopher Wright of the University of Sydney, and Prue Taylor of the University of Auckland. And uh, Leroy Westerling, a lot of this emphasis has been on community action to try to pressure corporations, try to pressure governments in, into action. And especially if you're talking about the need to fundamentally transform the way we think about the use of resources for economic development, this is going to take a pretty broad campaign. So I guess the question is, how much do we need to emphasize the role that civil society and the role that uh, academia uh, is playing in this versus, you know, the, the old standard actors we think about, government officials, corporate leaders, et cetera? I have a couple of things, I guess, in response. One is, uh, I think one aspect of this that we've missed in the discussion so far is really the action at national government levels that has had uh, an impact on moving the needle. Um, for example, early in the Obama administration, when... Uh, uh, they were dealing with uh, the aftermath of the financial crisis, right? Um, they had a pretty large spending package put in place, and they invested a lot of money in basically the building blocks of, of the new energy economy around the U.S. 
And also in just boosting demand, for example, using the Defense Department procurement to, to leverage uh, uh, renewable power purchases and things like that. So um, those investments, you know, can fluctuate with with the, the fiscal realities of different governments and with uh, uh, the changes in party leadership and things like that at the national level. But they have sort of a permanent impact in the sense that um, we learn how to do stuff better and we're driving down over time the cost of producing clean energy so that now coal is not very competitive uh, at all with, with electricity uh, from solar, for example, in some places like where I live in California. And uh, I think, uh, you know, there, there was the impact of the uh, federal level investments in the U.S. under Obama and then something similar in Germany, I believe, and uh, China invested a lot as well. And, and the three of those together really um, helped bring down those costs. And as you expand those sectors, uh, so you're getting larger and larger companies and economic interests now vested in the new energy economy, that you're essentially helping create a, a, a positive dynamic there where you're, you're not only are you lowering the cost, but you're bringing more voices to the table to counteract these vested fossil fuel interests. So they're now competing you know, the Teslas of the world uh, uh, to uh, for their own place at the trough, right? And uh, um, that helps uh, over time, probably nowhere near as quickly as we need, um, counteract some of the, the concentrated influence of these fossil fuel actors. You mentioned academia. So uh, in the University of California, we actually had a memorial. This is something that's voted on by all the faculty um, it's a memorial to the regents and the, the um, president of the university uh, across the whole statewide system uh, calling for uh, um, basically climate, uh, a set of climate actions, including divestment of our, our retirement funds from fossil fuel interests. And that was largely successful. Uh, and now another one is under discussion, uh, which would be basically committing to a certain amount of reduction in fossil fuel emissions from the campuses by a certain date. So in other words, no longer using offsets, uh, financial instruments uh, to, to basically say we're carbon zero or gonna be net carbon zero by a certain date, but to actually force absolute reductions in, in the carbon emissions to support the campus's research and teaching and service missions. So things like that helps set a standard uh, when we show that we can do it and still be financially uh, <laughs> functional as an institution. It's a very large institution. Um, it helps uh, other actors in the state uh, follow, follow suit. Um, California, you, you mentioned, uh, I forget who it was, you know, uh, uh, seeing how states move ahead and then and, and are, and are prosperous. So California, it's really interesting. You know, they, they've made very large commitments to uh, uh, fossil fuel reduction as well as climate change adaptation. Um, and uh, um, the economy is doing very well. It, it, just for example, we, we were quite concerned with our budgetary situation within the university back in 2020, uh, they were projecting these massive uh, state deficits and those deficits didn't materialize. Instead, we had a record, um, I think 
billion, 75 billion surplus, unexpected statewide. Uh, and the, you know, all the cuts to the university were restored. So uh, I think uh, there are examples of states that are taking a very proactive approach to climate uh, in their legislation and investments and uh, doing very well um, economically. And uh, Christopher Wright, Leroy Westerling just said, you know, places like, you know, the endowments for universities and the divestiture movement from, from fossil fuels. I know that there, this has also been an issue for investing sort of the, you know, more of the environmental investments, particularly people with things like their 401ks wanting to ensure they're not investing. Is this a effective tool at motivating corporations to, to change behavior? What kind of impact does this have? Well, certainly since about 2015, when Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, came out with that um, that letter, a uh, speech he gave at Lloyd's Bank in London, which pretty expressly um, for the financial community, investment community, pointed out the severe financial risks that climate change poses, that has changed the discussion in financial markets and amongst financial analysts. And that is driving a lot of attention, at least, and some change. I think this whole bandwagon effect around net zero carbon by 2050 that most companies and pretty well every nation has jumped onto um, is a sort of a discursive response to the growing awareness and pressure around the climate crisis. I mean, it's clearly inadequate and it's kicking the can down the road or as Alex Steffen uh, terms it, it's a, almost a form of predatory delay. Um, but yeah, so the conversation has changed and there are more and more people in financial markets and businesses who are at least now aware of the climate crisis and the need to take action. But just taking a step back um, and, and the comment um, that was made earlier, there's not just fossil fuels, that's, that's spot on because the problem, the climate crisis reveals essentially, I'd argue, the fundamental contradiction between um, economic growth, which our global capitalist economic system is predicated upon, compound economic growth ad infinitum, um, the contradiction between that and the material impacts that that economic system has. And climate change is one of those manifestations along with a whole range of other planetary boundaries that we're blowing out. Um, so what we need to do is decouple at an ab absolute level, uh, decouple economic growth from its material impacts. And really the only institutions that can do that are governments, unfortunately, for all of their faults. Um, and again, sort of citing historical examples, we, we can do this, you know, wartime mobilisation in World War II, um, the response to the financial crisis in 2008, the response to COVID pandemic. If you look at the way governments didn't debate the science around COVID, they just threw money and resources at vaccine development and quarantines and what have you. Uh, so, you know, emergency responses can be made. I think the difference with climate change is, one, the magnitude of the problem, the extent and how embedded it is in our economic and political systems. Uh, and two, that the vested interests have played a very canny political game for 40 years. Um, that book they knew, I think, was the title. I mean, it's it's really interesting, that research that's come out around what Exxon and BP and Shell knew back in the late 70s and early 80s, you know, that their internal research scientists were already plotting where would carbon emissions be in 2020, 415 parts per million, they got a bang on. And that was that was a graph they produced back in, I think, 1982. So we need that wartime pivot. How's it going to happen? How are we going to generate this tipping point towards decoupling? I think, you know, to, to emphasise the points that other speakers have made earlier, uh, there is this gra grassroots pressure, the social mobilisation around climate justice. It's now starting to manifest itself in financial markets and business corporations are starting to talk about it. My own take is, will we... We will respond as a civilization. We'll respond 
I think, too late in terms of avoiding plus two degrees C. Um, so things are going to get pretty nasty. Um, but uh, there will be significant change, both in mitigation and adaptation, and that's starting to unfold. And a lot of that pressure is coming from the climate movement, putting pressure on politicians, putting pressure on businesses. And there will be almost a sort of a cascading tipping point, I think, where that uh, change will ratchet up um, significantly over time. This show was recorded November 2021. When we come back, why have previous efforts to mitigate climate change done so little to decrease greenhouse gas emissions? Stay with us. To the Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Maria Arbudian. Concepts like net zero and carbon offset have done little towards decreasing the amount of greenhouse gases we emit into the atmosphere. Is the current legal and voluntary structure adequate to meet the challenge of climate change? If not, what could replace it? Doug Becker explores. I'm Doug Becker. We're discussing the climate crisis the challenge it poses, and the need to address this in a much more comprehensive and detailed, committed fashion. Our guests are William Muma of Tufts University, Leroy Westerling of the University of California, Merced, Christopher Wright of the University of Sydney, and Prue Taylor of the University of Auckland. And before the break, Christopher was talking about the need to mobilize resources really not that dissimilar to wartime mobilization, or I'm thinking in particular also the, the mobilization around COVID and this response is at least giving us some glimpses of success, though I have my criticisms of the nature of the mobilization. And Prue Taylor, your writing describes the need to think of addressing climate change through the eyes of responsibility to protect. And when you think of responsibility to protect, you're talking about populations dramatically at need because of the nature of atrocity or war, natural disaster, and the need for immediate action. How do we frame this legally as well as politically to compel this mobilization? Will these, all these weather events lead us to a need for the kind of mobilization that Christopher was talking about? Mm. <laughs> Enormous question. <laughs> but... Um... One approach that we really need to consider from a legal perspective and a you know, transformative change perspective is what do we mean by state sovereignty? What are the duties and responsibilities of nation states and governments when we are confronted with the existential threats that we're confronted with? And, you know, quite frankly, climate change is is the first off the rank, but I don't think uh, it's going to be the only one off the rank shortly. I think 
particularly when we um, take an Earth systems approach and we look at the nine planetary boundaries and we look at the interrelationship between those planetary boundaries and we understand tipping points and global cascades. And we understand particularly the interaction between the ocean, the climate system and, and biodiversity, then we will have waves of massive challenges to respond to. And the way states currently understand their function as protective generally of national interests, that really does have to change. And it's capable of changing that states can see actually if they're to have any sovereign legitimacy, then that legitimacy must come from a fundamental responsibility to protect human beings, to protect the people within their jurisdiction, but equally now to protect people in a global context. So what states do in their own country or don't do in their own country is now just not a matter of the protection or lack of protection of people within their sovereign jurisdiction, but it has a global implication. In legal terms, we have uh, examples responsibility to protect, for example, where we're starting to understand state sovereignty is much more than rights and limited duties, but also now ecological responsibilities in a global context. I think also um, what could shift things in a legal context is the role that civil society is going to play in demanding that nation states change the way they act and perceive themselves uh, and demanding that their own governments reshape their legal frameworks within a national and subnational context to ensure that everything that is going on in a country is not just about what's happening in an old fashioned territorial context, but is understood in a global systems context. So what we do in relation to our water resources, our atmosphere, uh, our soils, is no longer just a matter of the benefit of a local population or a national population. It's intimately interconnected with everybody. Um, I also think that uh, as the injustice of what's going on starts to become far more apparent, both globally and within national jurisdictions. Uh, states will be reconsidering where their sovereign legitimacy comes from. And you asked a question previously about the role of academia and academics uh, and experts. I think that one role that we have to play is to help civil societies understand uh, and not be bamboozled by um, strategies that are like this, what, what did you refer to? predatory delay, you know, like net zero by 2050 is an abomination. And it is the role of academics to help civil society understand that and to shine a light on it and quite frankly, help a lot of politicians understand why that is woefully inadequate. And William Muma, I know you work with academics you know, quite a bit, you know, on, on precisely this issue of the nature of this diplomacy. I think what 
Prue Taylor's describing is really, first of all, a reconceptualization of sovereignty, which is embedded in this notion of, I call it, con, you know, conditional sovereignty. Your sovereignty comes with responsibilities, not just rights to, to do certain things, but also about security. I mean, just the whole, you know, in international relations, we think of the state as primarily providing security, but environmental erosion is itself a huge insecurity question. So how do we get there to this point? Uh, it's a very good question. Yes. Um, well, this whole whole uh, obligation to protect, I think, is a really interesting uh, change of of the of the framing. Uh, that it's not uh, it's it's not just a, a convenience of having a government. It's an obligation of government, and it also it requires a rethinking of what we protect. And uh, we've always thought of about it in terms of the enemy is outside. I mean, I've always thought you know. It would be very fortunate if uh, climate change were actually an attack by Martians um, or in the old Cold War, it was the Soviets that were doing it to us. Or, or if we could even convince people that it's it's uh, it's the Australians that are doing it or there's somebody else. As long as we had a, if we could get actually if we could make it something that's outside of any given nation today and therefore we're all pulling together to fight it, that would be a wonderful, a wonderful direction to go. But again, the, the ingenious ways in which this is avoided uh, by 2050, for example. And, and I don't know if you've seen this wonderful thing from an Australian fellow who posted it online that he's a 73-year-old man and he's, uh, he's uh, promised to uh, give up drinking beer by 2050. It's, it's hilarious. It's wonderful. And, uh, you know, who, who's going to be... Who's going to be a CEO of the company today will be here even in 2030, for heaven's sakes. So that's why I think the question we have to ask these corporations is, what did you do this past year and what are you doing next year? What are you doing next month? Um, and this is why I really like annual reporting. Annual reporting forces people to pay attention at least year by year, instead of every five years we'll come back and raise the, uh, and re reset our, our nationally determined contributions. Um, so um, it's, it's, um, I think we have to reframe reframe this so that the pressure is on all the time uh, to to move forward. One other thing that I I've I've tried to make this point uh, both in the U.S. and in Europe that um, any of these agreements that we have uh, should not be seen as a goal to be reached. They should be a floor under ambition, but not a ceiling on accomplishments. In other words, there's no reason why we can't do more than what the what the one and a half or the two degrees or the whatever it's going to be uh, individually or as a corporation or as a as a single government. I don't know why we don't why a whole group of governments just didn't didn't say, OK, all right, we understand on the international system. Everybody's got to agree. But since we can't agree on anything that's going to do anything, the the, uh, the the 10 biggest emitters have gotten together and we're going to do the following things. Or if it's not the 10 biggest, at least it's 10 and they're going to do something. Um, and and I'm, I'm coming more and more to, to, to the conclusion that uh, some of these less formal structures are going to be far more effective. They're already more, far more effective than some of the formal structures uh, internationally, at least. So... Um, uh, just one other thing, I think uh, one of the biggest mistakes we ever made was to allow the, the, the discussion to be in terms of net, net emissions as opposed to absolute emissions. Um, you know, um, 
uh, as the IPCC recently pointed out in their, their report, uh, every year for the last six decades, um, uh, remarkably enough of the increase of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is only 44% of what we put in. Well, thank you. Who's helping us? Well, guess what? It's nature. It's, it is the forests. It's the uh, wetlands on land. It's the oceans. They're absorbing 56, an amount from the atmosphere every year that's equal to 56% of what we're putting in. Not that they're taking out what, exactly what we put in, but just that big bucket of carbon dioxide up there. Uh, and yet we keep degrading that as we pursue this extractive system we have, destroying it. Uh, Canada, this last year, reported that their forests, their managed forests, which were removing 160 million tons of carbon a year in, 20, in, uh, in the year 2000, in the last five years, are now emitting 24 million tons of carbon. And it's still going in that direction. This isn't just Brazil. In fact, it's awfully convenient for those of us in the north to point to the tropics and say, oh my God, those tropical forests, they're so important. They are so important. But they never mention the fact that uh, the, the, our boreal and temperate forests hold more carbon than all the tropical forests in the world. And that we are destroying them as fast as they are in the developing in the tropics, but they're bigger forests, so it's taken us longer. Uh, but we're on that track, sadly enough. So we need to, and, and offsets are simply an excuse to let companies and com countries continue to emit fossil fuel emissions and every other kind of greenhouse gas. So we ought to keep two columns. One is what are we doing to reduce our emissions? And what are we doing to remove carbon by increasing our natural systems? And we look at those as two separate things, each of which is essential. And you, you know, but you cannot use one to offset the other and you can't trade it. They just agreed, oh, we finally found a system to trade the carbon emissions across countries. You know, it's, we should give, if we want to do that, we want to, we should provide the resources for the other country to reduce their emissions more. And focusing on emissions reduction and increasing removals by nature, that has to be our, our focus. And we need to find a diplomatic system that will make that possible. And it's not all going to be through governments. It's going to be at different levels of, of societal organization and different sectors of the economy. And uh, fortunately, there are some willing. And so we ought to work with them first, get it all set so we can see how it works, and then draw others in because of its economic success compared to what they're facing. And you listen to Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. We're talking about the climate change crisis with William Mumaw of Tufts University, Leroy Westerling of University of California, Merced, Christopher Wright of the University of Sydney, and Prue Taylor of the University of Auckland. Leroy Westerling, do uh, you have a response to some of these challenges? Clearly, net zero by 2050 isn't enough, and we need a different way to, uh, to look at this. Some suggestions about different ways to, uh, to look at the challenge? I think it's important to keep in mind that, I mean, everything that we've been talking about here in terms of solutions is important. The moral suasion, the, the legal definitions, uh, you know, pushing on, on corporations. 
But I think there's another aspect here, which is that fossil fuel companies are not dumb. <laughs> the people who own those assets in the ground that if we keep them in the ground, uh, lose all their value or, uh, you know, um, have been looking at this problem for a long time and know, you know, where we the rest of us are headed. And I think, you know, it's clear that they've been investing in degrading democracy around the world to exactly forestall the kinds of changes that we're talking about. So uh, if we lose our, our ability to have a majority opinion translate into policy, which is already uh, the case in the U.S. in a lot of cases, I think, um, uh, none of these things work very well. So uh, the bottom line is, is uh, that we have to preserve and strengthen democracy in order for, for any of these changes to, to be effective on a, on a reasonable timescale. Absolutely. And Christopher Wright, sort of the same theme of that, as far as sort of popular pressure, it's, you know, civil society groups pressuring corporations, not just certainly the importance of pressuring governments, but pressuring corporations into shifting their attitudes, shifting, you know, their values that reflect a need to, to protect the planet, a need to address climate change. Yeah, so, I mean, there has been very strong um, civil social movements, climate movements targeting corporations, and, and 350.org and Bill McKibben's work have been an obvious example of the focus on fossil fuel divestment. And just to go back to an earlier comment, you know, it would be nice if there was this alien species threatening the planet, like in some Hollywood movie, or, you know, it was the uh, the, the ex-Soviet Union, the, the enemy, we had a defined enemy. In You know, uh, in fact, we do, and I think that was McKibben's um clever framing that uh, that Rolling Stone article he wrote in 2012 was to, to frame the enemy, you know, public enemy number one are the fossil fuel corporations, which basically have a business model that they will extract and use those fossil fuel reserves, which are five times the, um, the, the carbon budget we have left to avoid two degrees C. So um, there is a sort of a social movement around um, trying to change the political discussion and identify that the, the sort of the key enemy here is this sort of this fossil energy um, political nexus, a state capital nexus, which is driving us towards this form of sort of creative self-destruction that we're throwing our innovative capacities at all of the wrong things, cutting down the forests, um, trying to invent new technologies to extract oil from tar sands, going out in the oceans, deep water oil drilling, um, going into the Arctic where the ice is melted to drill for oil and gas. I mean, these are the insane sort of innovations that we're throwing our, our creative capacity at instead of um, the sort of the transition to sort of large scale solar and wind and renewable energy and battery storage and, and reducing the emissions and, and, and harnessing uh, and growing the forests to capture that carbon. So I think uh, that those earlier points are spot on. We need um, a political shift. We need to improve democracy. Uh, and that can come through social movements, but it's, again, it's a Herculean task because we're fighting against an established political and economic order, um, which uh, has been around for decades. And they, as, as Professor Westling was saying, they're not stupid. Um, and they have a very powerful war chest around public relations and marketing uh, to capture that sort of politics and continue down the route that we're on. And Prue Taylor, but I wanted to give you sort of the last word on the need for action in addressing these, in addressing this challenge. On the point about democracy, great. I mean, absolutely spot on. But in terms of strengthening our democracies, 
I think a missing element of that is, I mean, civil society can only do so much. So I think an also really important element of strengthening our democracies is to look at how we strengthen our politicians, how we give them the strategies to resist vested interests, to understand, you know, the, the subtle strategies, the pressures uh, that, they, that they come under. So, you know, politicians, um, will always come under pressure from vested interests. So this, I think our education system plays a really important role here. Um, so that's one uh, point that I'd like to make. The other point is to come back to something William said about um, these alliances that are emerging as a means to perhaps circumvent the problem of getting 190 states um, to join in a consensus agreement. So there, you know, there are some hopeful signs with these alliances. Um, you know, they're very loose, they're very voluntary. Uh, perhaps they're, um, they're a sign that some states are prepared to test the waters about how to go about um, breaking through some of these problems with getting consensus. Um, and we do have, we, again, we have history, history to draw on here. The Law of the Sea Convention only came about because some powerful states got together and sort of entered into a gentleman's agreement and didn't require consensus from the rest of the states. So we do have examples where states can come together if they really want to, to push through these sorts of problems. Mm -hmm. Now, what's going to be really interesting is to see that there has to be both states, a group of powerful states coming together and creating these alliances. But what also has to happen is they have to agree on what their liability is if they don't hold themselves to those alliances. So I, I see some hopeful signs there. But what I really want to see is where is the liability? And the same goes with corporations and vested interests. When they start holding themselves accountable and allowing us and our legal systems to hold them accountable through liability, then I think we've seen real signs of shift. Until we see that, I'm sorry, but it's, it's, it's kind of all nice platitudes and national contributions as opposed to required um, reduction. So when we, when we talk about ambition, ratcheting up ambition, I want to see that ratcheting action. Oh, absolutely. And I think ending on this question of liability, because the need to hold government's feet to the fire, to hold corporations' feet to the fire, global governance feet to the fire is because the real liability is the threats that the planet faces um, as the temperatures continue to rise and the need for decisive action, because if we don't act, we're gonna suffer those consequences. I wanna thank the panel for today's show. Our panel today has been William Mumaw, Emeritus Professor of International Environmental Policy and Founding Director of the Center for International Environment and Resource Policy at the Fletcher School, Tufts University. Professor Mumau has been a lead author of five intergovernmental panel on climate change or IPCC reports and the author of Good Scientist Diplomats or Diplomat Scientists, Who Makes Science Diplomacy Effective? 
Leroy Westerling is professor of the management of complex systems in the Ernest and Julio Gallo management program, the University of California, Merced. He's the co-author of Greater Temperature and Precipitation Extremes Intensify Western U.S. Droughts, Wildfire Severity, and Sierra Nevada Tree Mortality. Christopher Wright is Professor of Organizational Studies at the University of Sydney Business School. He's the co-author of Climate Change, Capitalism, and Corporations, Processes of Creative Self-Destruction. And Prue Taylor, Deputy Director of the New Zealand Center for Environmental Law. She is Senior Lecturer in the a School of Architecture and Planning at the University of Auckland, and author of Opportunity Within Failure, Can the Global Pact for the Environment Learn from the Responsibility to Protect and the Responsibility for the Ecological Integrity of the High Seas, the Role of Natural Law. Thank you all very, very much. It's been an incredibly insightful conversation. And that's it for today's program. Thank you for listening. The Scholar Circle is hosted by Doug Becker. Its managing producers are Ankina Agassian and Melissa Chiprin. Sad Dongre is our webmaster and assistant producer. Our archives are at scholarcircle.org, and our podcasts are on Apple and Google Podcasts and iTunes. Please follow us on at Scholar Circle or me at Armudian and join our Facebook page. I'm the founder, anchor, and occasional host, Maria Armudian. This show was recorded November 2021.